0: Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Legal Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us.
1: I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. For African-Americans, voting historically has
0: been a major issue and concern. In recent years, especially after the 2008 election of President Barack Obama, the North Carolina General Assembly has been engaged in ongoing efforts to suppress the rights and opportunities of African-Americans and other racial minorities to vote. Until last month, efforts to legally thwart that campaign have been successful. In groundbreaking decisions by the former North Carolina Supreme Court, that court has issued decisions which provided for judicial review of redistricting plans by the General Assembly, Enlarge the opportunity for persons who have been imprisoned to vote and declared that voter ID requirements violated the North Carolina Constitution. Last month, an unprecedented decision by the present Republican-dominated Supreme Court, those earlier decisions were reversed by that court. The results of those decisions is that the North Carolina General Assembly now has obtained absolute authority to impose restrictions on the rights of citizens to vote and to decide how state and congressional political districts will be configured. On this program, we are again going to discuss voting rights and the impact of these recent Supreme Court decisions. So joining with us to, to discuss these issues Marcus Bass, who is the uh, Executive Director of Advanced North Carolina, and Jeff Loprofito, the Senior Voting Rights Attorney for the Southern Coalition for Social Justice. So uh, good evening to uh, both of you, and uh, welcome to the Legal Legal Review. Good
2: evening. Good evening. Thank you all.
0: Well, starting us off, and uh, just for the uh, information for our audience, Want to uh, get uh, Marcus and, and Jeff to kind of talk about some of the uh, present efforts that you are engaged in uh, to promote voter and political uh, participation and to ensure the uh, voting rights of uh, all citizens. So uh, why don't we start with Marcus on that?
3: Thank you, Irv, and uh, it's good to be here with everyone. I think that's a good question to start off because. There is hope, I think, in this process at the end of the day. Um, Every single year, and uh, as a matter of fact, every single decade since his numbers come back that show us that our populations of uh, multiple communities across the country uh, are coming to North Carolina, and our numbers are growing in a way in which if we can harness the power of reaching every single person in this state to vote, we can beat uh, some of these regressive policies. Um, I think Supreme Court Justice Anita Earls says a good map can beat, I mean, a good vote can beat a bad map any day. And I think in North Carolina, we do have that opportunity. Our organization works to make sure we can uh, make the best use of that opportunity by working with historically disenfranchised communities across North Carolina, many of which are in rural Eastern North Carolina, uh, to develop infrastructure to help support voter education, civic participation, and making sure voters are equipped with the information they need uh, to cast a ballot and doing so in the most educated way possible. Uh, historically, there have been many ways uh, that I think voting has shown its its head in this kind of racist construct. And what we're seeing today play out uh, is not just a, a one and done situation where folks came in a room and made a decision um, based on their emotions, but a play that even before 2008, I heard you mention attorney General 2008 election of President Obama, kind of began. And we have to educate voters around what history, what the current process looks like and what we could do in the future to make sure we change that. And so the Black Alliance has been around for over the past 20 years, uh, comprised of many black institutions in North Carolina uh, seeking to build black political power. And we just hosted our annual event, the North Carolina Black Summit, um, during the same day, as a matter of fact, that the Supreme Court rulings uh, came down. So very interested in this discussion and happy to be here.
0: Okay. And Jeff, can you talk about the uh, uh, the work that the uh, Southern Coalition for Social Justice is doing in this regard?
2: Uh, yeah. Yes, thank you. So uh, our organization litigated two of the three cases that we're here to talk about today, the, the one impacting uh, voter ID and, and redistricting, and sort of the most immediate thing that we've turned our attention to, given uh, those, those decisions last month, is getting the word out with regard to voter ID, because voter ID, um, The law that we had kept off the books for nearly four years is being implemented right now by the State Board of Elections for this upcoming 2023 municipal election, uh, where voting is set to begin as early as August 11th for absentee mail-in ballots in certain municipalities across the state. Um, So it's been a bit of a rapid response, uh, interpreting sort of the the court's decision, the necessary things that have to happen in in the next three months for this rollout to occur, and making sure that the, the voters of North Carolina actually understand what their rights are and what um, these these added hurdles will mean for their voting experience. Um, so one of the things that is I want to highlight is that um, under this law that does require voter ID when you present to vote, you can still vote if you lack an ID, and there's a lot of different circumstances that um, I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit as this conversation continues um, that still allows you to, to cast a vote um, if you don't have an ID. So by no means should individuals without lack, who are lacking ID feel like that they can't go to the polls and, and still cast their ballot and have their voice heard. They, they can. Uh, the process will be different, but the right remains that they can vote. Um, and we have been tracking sort of the State Board of Elections. Uh, we've been tracking the, the response by the legislature as they continue to sort of contemplate what it means for this law that uh, originally had a, a, a multi-year rollout for it to be implemented in such a short period of time. Um, Related to that and and sort of something that that you mentioned, uh, Professor Joyner, at the top, you know, the decision by this court, uh, although we the litigators sort of saw this coming in some regard when they decided to rehear the case back in January, uh, the extreme nature of it, the unprecedented nature of it um, is something else. And it's something that we've been trying to communicate more and more to the communities we serve and the public at large and and trying to get the, the state and national media. To understand the, the the shift in the in the groundwork here and the consequences of a decision like this that really abandons multi-decade precedent and and, and century-long norms with regard to a court, a, the high court of this state, deciding to revisit a decision that was that happened mere months ago and completely reverse it and go the other direction. You know these are elected officials. Uh, the court flipped because of elections last in, in 2022. Uh, statewide elections, and um, you know the, those those races, those statewide appellate uh, races, court of appeals in North Carolina, Supreme Court, have impacts on the types of policies that get passed by the legislature, about the the way in which even you know your local school functions, and having more conversation about the the important policy role that the justices who fill those seats has in, in shaping the, the 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 state that we live in has to be more of the conversation going forward. Um, as, we, as we proceed to the next election, 2023, and then the statewide elections in 2024?
0: Right, well, Jeff, the Southern Coalition has uh, been engaged in litigation in this uh, voting rights space uh, for a while. And in fact, uh, it was formerly uh, led by uh, Justice uh, Anita Earls, who has become a uh, national expert in uh, voting rights law. Uh, in uh, in the United States and has been the lead attorney in a number of uh, federal uh, cases. Uh, her term is ending, I believe, next year uh, or year after next. Uh, this year, uh, the uh, terms of uh, Mike Morgan, uh, who is the other African American who sits on the uh, North Carolina Supreme Court, uh, will uh, end and he has announced that uh, he is not going to uh, seek re-election. Uh, as, as you look at the, uh, the state space and what is happening here in North Carolina, uh, do you see long-time negative implications from the, uh, the three decisions that we have made reference to from the uh, North Carolina Supreme Court? On the uh, voting opportunities and voter protections of people in the state.
2: Uh, I mean, the short answer is yes, and, and I don't want to f- necessarily focus on, on on the negative and the harm, but I I, I don't think we can kind of look away from it. And to, to give the, the listeners a little bit of context, uh, you know, let's talk about let me let me talk about what what these cases did. So the redistricting case, the Harper v. Hall matter, essentially decided the question as to whether the legislature can purposely draw uh, House, Senate, and congressional districts with a personal viewpoint, partisan affiliation in mind in order to um, secure the power that they hold over those those offices of government. Um, And the prior North Carolina State Court said, no, they cannot. That is a violation of, of the First Amendment, free speech, free association. That's a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. Uh, because it's treating different people differently for unjustified reasons, and it's also a, tri- a, a violation of of the free election clause, which is one of the unique provisions of the North Carolina Constitution. That that clause does not exist in the U.S. Constitution. And what the history and the record presented in front of the North Carolina court found was that that free election clause meant exactly what uh, the, you know the opposite of what the, the court was the the legislature was doing. You cannot draw maps that essentially predetermine the outcome of these races. And it was undisputed at the trial court level who did all the fact-finding, who heard from all the witnesses that these were extreme Republican uh, gerrymanders. They said that, uh, and I don't have the exact quote in front of me, um, but they said that the, um, the, the maps that they were assessing were basically in conflict with principles of democracy as they understood it. These were three Republican judges saying this, but under their reading of the constitution at the time, didn't think there was a claim. And the North Carolina State, the North Carolina, excuse me, the North Carolina Supreme Court said was that, of course, you can't do this. You can't disenfranchise voters based on how they voted previously and essentially give the legislature the ability to um, hold these positions in perpetuity. That was the redistricting case. The voter ID case, again, this was a voter ID law that the the lower court found um, disproportionately impacted Black voters. It found that Black voters were less likely to hold the uh, acceptable IDs, the versions of IDs. Uh, they were 1.4 times less likely to hold them compared to, to white voters. And the record evidence also showed that legislatures, legislators knew about this disparate impact. They knew about the fact that from the prior uh, voter ID law that it was likely to impact African-American voters uh, and disenfranchise them despite being eligible. And they did nothing about it. They just rammed it through that lame duck session over the veto of, of Governor Cooper. Um, and lastly, uh, the CSI matter. Again, these these are individuals who are had prior felony convictions, served their sentence, are out in community, living amongst us, paying taxes, uh, bringing their kids to school, working their their jobs, and the uh, North Carolina Supreme Court have stripped them of their rights basically because uh, of fines and fees that they're unable to pay, uh, and and essentially creating. The type of poll tax that we, you know, most states in the U.S. got uh, rid of years and years and decades ago, um, creating a financial hurdle for these voters to be able to vote. Um, all those decisions came down on the same day, and all those decisions uh, restrict the right to vote dramatically and restrict the right to vote disproportionately on African American voters. So um, that that is going to be a short and long term harm. And I mean, the, the goal now is to continue to I think do some harm mitigation, but start planning for the future that allows for that fundamental right to vote, to not be infringed simply on, on partisan or, or racist grounds.
1: Both of you have talked about the importance of educating folks on um, the what they need to do in order to vote, um, educating them on these changing rules and, and Supreme Court cases. So this is a challenge though, um, and, and I wonder if both of you can kind of talk about um, the challenges that you experience in trying to educate the citizens of North Carolina about this ever-changing landscape. And um, Jeff, as you were talking about these three cases and those of us that are, you know, kind of um, keep our head in in the the wind in terms of things that are going on, it's Um, Terrifying, of course. But there are a lot of folks in North Carolina that aren't aware of these decisions. So one, kind of educating them about what the North Carolina Supreme Court has done, how that impacts their rights, and then also how to educate them so that they can nevertheless, Marcus, as you noted, still exercise those rights. And Marcus, let's start with you.
3: I think that's a very good question, Professor Dawson. Right here on the campus of North Carolina Central University, I think it's important to start that college students are one of the first groups that we're really working with to make sure they're educated around the harms that this law uh, carries with it and just their ability to maybe not even use their student photo ID. We don't quite know yet what all forms of identification will be validated. We do know for a fact that the North Carolina driver's license and the North Carolina DMV Are going to be the main arbitrators between the Board of Elections to make sure that the identification card is validated or used. And I think the General Assembly has the authority in this moment, the Republican-controlled General Assembly is going to make sure historically they have restricted access to different forms of identification. And so for I think students that are coming from out of state, for students that are just graduating right now, uh, there's even some provisions that currently state that if a student has a diploma, in North Carolina or has a transcript, they can actually go to the Board of Elections office right now, go to the DMV and get their uh, free photo ID from the DMV. Uh, We haven't tested that across the state to really see if uh, county governments are allowing that to happen. But there's so many different changes that could happen within the next month, within the next week. I think there are basic facts too that organizations like SCSJ like Uh, The North Carolina Black Alliance are trying to make sure that we're promoting a community. But I think our college students in particular who are now leaving campus for two to three months coming back in, uh, most of which are going to be new incoming freshmen, um, a lot of which could come from out of state, really from out of county, from out of these counties, need to know the changes. Typically, historically, we've had uh, large voter registration drives on campuses at the beginning of the fall semester. When students come in, they understand that they have to have you know, uh, uh, the imperative to register and vote. Now we have to work with the campuses, even now, to talk to them about ways that we can ensure that voter ID cards are provided in whatever way possible on the day of. Uh, We've been talking to the state DMV around using their mobile vehicles uh, at the HBCU campuses and with our churches primarily too. Uh, I'll say this and then I'll toss it back to Jeff. Uh, One area that we're looking at, I know we talked about young voters, but our seniors as well, Uh, Historically, our um, senior community has voted in record numbers. They have the highest voter participation. Um, And in some cases, the identification cards of those individuals after 65 years of age, if expired, may not be valid. And so I think there's some intricacies in the process that is not just going to be harming uh, one community, black or white, uh, old or young, but I think everybody is going to be impacted by what's happening. We have to make sure we're educating and then watching the process at the same time for those shifts so we can be nimble in community.
0: Okay, this is the uh, legal legal review. And uh, we're talking about uh, the uh, some changes from the North Carolina Supreme Court with respect to uh, voting rights and the protections of uh, individuals as they uh, seek uh, to vote and to determine for whom they can uh, vote and then the rights of those persons who were formerly incarcerated. Uh, to vote. And we're talking with uh, two uh, experts uh, in this uh, area. Uh, we're going to take our break uh, right now and we're gonna come back and uh, let Jeff uh, continue uh, in response to uh, the uh, last question that we have. But I uh, want you to uh, stay with us and we'll be right back.
4: Hello, this is Shantae McNeil, and I am a second-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. If you are convicted of a felony in North Carolina, you lose the right to vote until you have completed all aspects of your prison or jail sentence, as well as any period of probation, post-release supervision, or parole associated with a felony sentence. Once the period of supervision is over for the felony, you automatically regain the right to vote. However, you must still register to vote. If your probation period is extended due to failure to pay a financial debt related to your felony, you are not eligible to vote. But for many of you, probation can and does end, although you have remaining debts. If your period of felony supervision is over, you regain your voting rights, even if you have remaining debts associated with your sentence. For more information on your rights after serving your sentence, Contact the North Carolina State Board of Elections by email at elections.sboe at ncsbe.gov or by phone at 919 814 0700. This is Shantae McNeil with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening.
1: And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour about voting rights in North Carolina and recent North Carolina Supreme Court decisions that are eroding people's rights. We have with us here in our Zoom studio Marcus Bass. He is the executive director of Advanced North Carolina and Deputy Director of North Carolina Black Alliance. We also have with us Jeff Lopravito, the Interim Chief Counsel of Voting Rights for the Southern Coalition for Social Justice. So right before the break, I had asked both of you about the challenges in educating the citizens of North Carolina about the changes that are taking place in voting um, educating them about the importance of voting and what they might need to do, changes that may have to be made. Uh, Marcus, you were able to share your thoughts, and we wanted, Jeff, for you to be able to share your thoughts on the challenges and the and the need for educating the public.
2: Thank you, y'all. I'll just hit on two quick points. I mean, I think there there is something um, encouraging if you kind of look at the last decade or two with regard to the topic of redistricting. I think if you asked most people on the street you know, 20 years ago, what is a gerrymander, what is redistricting? Most people would just kind of look at you funny. And I think the, the public dialogue uh, has changed with regard to that. I think people have a better understanding of the impact that um, certainly statewide redistricting has on their lives, but, but more so, and where we do a lot of work across the North Carolina State, at the local level, um, school boards, city councils, county commissioner's offices, um, all of these governmental entities uh, involve some form of map and some form of form of a method of voting. And more and more, we were finding opportunities to educate and energize individuals at the local level, uh, which then allows them to be activated for, for these statewide efforts because somebody uh, in the school board is doing something extreme and they're wondering why is this person even on on this board and they look at the maps and I'm like oh this is a map that was passed 40 years ago it's never been changed the population deviations are all out of whack um people need to know about this or you know as recent as as this early early this spring the city of Goldsboro uh was trying to change their method of election to drop a primary that the voters there the local NAACP branch had uh always used always utilized and always were able to have their voices heard in the lead up to those elections for municipal officers. And through education, through uh, word of mouth in the community, you can build a an impactful groundswell of local support uh, to show up at these public hearings, to provide public comment and to impact the result because you have a lot fewer voters and a lot fewer constituents impacting sort of the, the decisions making being made in the local community. That type of on the ground work um, really helps build people uh, uh, inform people uh, given the tools to then have a better sense of being involved in the state process that oftentimes feels like there's little little very little uh interplay between the folks running the run of the show and everybody else uh, by design and then I'll just quickly on, on, on another point I mean I think the the importance of understanding sort of the role of the court system in this state as elected officials specifically given the decisions that we've seen I mean in the past month, we've seen the passage of the most restrictive abortion rights uh, uh, bill in North Carolina in in decades, and, and maybe history, or at least near history. And I think that is a direct consequence of the current formation of the court. I think the current formation of the court has given the green light to the legislature to, to basically do what they want uh, to pass uh, their extreme agenda. And um you know, if, pe- if if the candidates in in the last election and in future elections actually talked about their predispositions towards certain types of issues and certain types of rights, not necessarily talking about how they would decide a specific case, but talking about the judicial philosophies that they bring to the bench, um, and having actual individuals ask put these questions to the candidates and not allow them just to say, which has been the past practice, like, oh, I can't comment, I'm going to be on a judge. Of course, you should be commenting on how you are you predisposed to be thinking about these issues coming onto the bench. Uh, what other information matters for a voter in the state who's about to put somebody in a position that really has limited checks and balances um, once they're in that spot for the eight years that they're there? Really, all the only check is is the actions by the, the voters in the next election. So uh, having that conversation and, and, and ensuring that candidates can't skirt by, and that's on both sides of the aisle, um, just passing, passing the buck on, in terms of uh, how they're going to approach their job, I think that's that's part of the conversation too. And in, in
0: in light of the the, the Supreme Court uh, decision, are there efforts underway to identify citizens who likely don't possess uh, the uh, state uh, accepted voter ID, and are efforts underway to help those individuals to get uh, what? would be described as acceptable uh, voter ID that they can present uh, at at the poll. Uh, So let's start with Marcus on that, since you're the community organizer here. Well,
3: I'll tell you what, I wish I could say that the state is fulfilling their obligation to make sure that uh, as they pass laws, that these laws are able to help support or affirm the right to vote instead of restrict the right to vote. The sad news is that while they're passing these restrictive laws, we don't know if they're going to provide resources for these county boards to make sure that each and every single person that needs the voter ID should receive a voter ID. The responsibility, honestly, Attorney Joyner, should not be on the Black Alliance or the Black churches or the Black divine non, these Greek um, societies. It shouldn't be on the... Um, even the historical alumni associations in the black communities across North Carolina. But our organization has been working with each and every single one of these groups since April uh, to really figure out ways that we can come into coalition together to make sure that we're providing IDs for the individuals that uh, will need access to a voter ID. I mentioned earlier, that there's a specific population of individuals uh, that may not have an ID based on their age uh, or based on their entry into North Carolina. There is no database right now that shows us a clearinghouse of what is or who does not have the acceptable IDs because we just don't know uh, which forms will be accepted, particularly among the college campuses. But we're ready, almost in a tennis formation, to make sure that we can volley quickly and rally behind whatever decision the legislature makes and already talking to the state agencies and authorities uh, just today Uh, I approve some uh, graphic information that's going to go on social media to let folks know exactly what's going to happen as far as what we know now, not necessarily what's going to happen in the future, but what the laws on the books are now. And I will say that the State Board of Elections has tried to, in this moment, uh, make sure that everything that is accessible is uh, readily available to them. But I don't think that we're going to be able to cover the map fully until we know exactly what forms of identification uh, will be allowed and I do think there's still this clearinghouse where and Jeff mentioned this earlier where if you don't have a form of identification you can still provide an attestment that can be used on the back end to make sure that your vote is counted and we're thinking about following the process of a voter even if they don't have the correct form of identification to track and trace those individuals and making sure that we're catching them before um, they're you know misidentified or thrown away during canvas their vote is thrown away during canvas okay uh,
2: Jeff um Really, really spot on uh, a response by Marcus. You know, the, our groups like ours are trying to fill the gap, but it, it, responsibility should not fall on us. It should fall on the State Board of Elections, who I know are trying to do their best. But it also falls on the general assembly. The, the State Board of Elections, just in the past week, couple of weeks, have requested a revised budget to actually do this implementation, um, somewhere, you know, around ten million dollars or so, uh, to hire new poll uh, poll workers train officials, create training materials, have a campaign to educate uh, the the state population, update their computer systems that are very archaic to begin with, but to actually modify, to to be able to uh, house the information relating to photo ID. Uh, And then some basic things, and and this sort of speaks to the recklessness of the the North Carolina court's decision, sort of just dropping suddenly in April, um, this, this obligation, this requirement for this law. The state board, the law, requires that the county boards of election there are 100 of them across the, count, the state in our 100 counties should have the equipment in their office that allows them to take a photograph of somebody who walks in and presents and says i don't have an id i need an id so i can vote uh, take a photo print it off give it to them save a digital copy on the, in their system and they still to this day uh may 25th are still figuring that out because they don't have the equipment across the county uh, much of the response in our litigation from the General Assembly was that the law permits the printing of these free IDs at every county board of elections office at every early voting site. So voters on a single stop can go in person, get their photo and vote. And they don't even have the bare minimum of the, the, the photo and the printer in each of the county board's main offices right now with elections set to begin in three months. Um, you know, it is telling that if, if you, you pass a law, you don't fund it, and then you see the chaos that follows. I mean, it is is an expected result, and what's gonna happen is the people that lack these IDs. And we know, we don't know the specific individuals, but we know the categories. It is African-American voters, it is student voters, it's voters with disabilities, it's voters, elderly voters, it's voters in the the rural parts of North Carolina, Eastern North Carolina, um, who don't have, you know, it's a 40 minute drive to the DMV, and they don't necessarily have these identifications, and they don't have a photocopy at home if they vote by mail to, to scan their ID, which is gonna be a requirement now too. So we are doing work to educate uh, our, our partners who do more of the ground game work um, to, to apply pressure to the, to the state board in terms of their implementation. I mean, just one more quick aside, last year for uh, multiple months in the summer in between the primary and the general election, the state board of elections did not have voter registration forms to give to groups that do get out the vote, uh, voter registration drives. You could not get the physical paper copy because of supply shortages and and cost issues. So groups that do that type of work across the south, um, just they would either have to print them themselves and incur those costs, or just not do them. So just basic things, basic election admin um, uh, things that are needed that need to be funded, that need to have people doing them are falling through the cracks because of the the speed in which this is being implemented and the purposeful uh, starving of the beast being done by the General Assembly.
0: Well, let me just follow up that question with the failure of the uh, General Assembly to provide appropriate funding uh, for the uh, boards of uh, elections to uh, ensure that citizens uh, have the uh, voter's ID. Is that strong evidence of a an intent to discriminate that could be used in a legal sense uh, either in a state court or in federal court um
2: it is it'll, It would certainly be a piece of the puzzle and in in the normal instance, when you're bringing one of these cases, you're looking at a lot of different factors like uh, the impact of the law, the sequence in which it was passed, the considerations that were had on legislative during legislative debate debate. And then in the posture that we're currently in, like what actually happens when the law is in place, who is actually disenfranchised, uh, who gets, uh, who loses the right to vote because of implementation. So you know we're going to continue to monitor those things. We know from the the last time there was voter ID in North Carolina was the 2016 primary, that was in relation to the 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 monster suppression voter suppression bill that passed in 2013 and was struck down in 2016 uh and said to have uh discriminated with surgical precision against african-american voters we have data from that 2016 election showing exactly what you would expect that there was a disparate impact on african-american voters um sort of building off the legacy of slavery and jim crow laws and and then historically being uh kept on the outs in terms of political power and um wealth accumulation so the we have that data and, and I suspect we'll have similar data coming through this municipal election if the law remains in place for this upcoming election. And, th- and then all that information has to be considered in the context of the legal tools we have as as litigators in the voting rights space.
1: So Marcus, you've mentioned that we're still waiting to know which forms of ID will be acceptable. Um, we know which ones are, but there may be some others. When do we expect to have that information? Uh, and of course, The longer it takes to get that information, the greater chance that there will be misinformation that is pushed out. And so you mentioned your use of social media, getting that information out. And we know that there are deliberate efforts by some to suppress the vote, and they do that by deliberately putting out misinformation. Can you talk about what your thoughts are in terms of how you combat that as well?
3: Very loaded question. So first, let's do this, because I want to make sure we're understanding what we're dealing with. In 1868, post-Civil War Constitution that was created with Black legislators in the mix provided unfettered access to a free and fair democracy for residents in North Carolina. They also provided access to education for every single student. They also provided uh, support for the state to provide uh, resources for small towns and counties. We're seeing the eradication of all of this 100-plus-year legacy that has produced a vibrant North Carolina, and the spark was the 2008 election. We understand completely the aftermath of the 2008 election for a southern state, that has seen an interesting democratic control, but a consistent history of white control in the General Assembly. Uh, The backlash of the 2008 election was the fact that uh, 2010 General Assembly, for the first time in 100 years, took control of power. And the very next thing they did after President Obama was reelected in 2012, they introduced in 2013 the first voter ID measure. Because the courts intervened at that time, At that time, a partisan, uh, uh, an independent judiciary, right, because the balance of power states that in North Carolina, our Supreme Court elected officials historically were independent. They didn't have to run on a party. This partisan control grab now has us uh, in a space where we're having to determine where uh, these individual elements of harm are being, um, you know, I guess, extrapolated on community, but without really unpacking who is causing the harm how intentional it is right and so I, I just think that that's very important to really for us to really understand we would not be in this predicament if uh the residents in north carolina had access to the ballot this is not about even a republican or democrat control this is about the racist takeover of uh the way of life in north carolina that has been really catapulted by more participation in black voters and the black community and so i, I hate that um we're all, always kind of have to sugarcoat things in a partisan nature and really unpack the racist intent, because the individuals that are causing these harms, they know that they're harming majority black communities, majority black voters, when in reality, they're also harming every single voter, every single resident in North Carolina, black, white or indifferent, um, because it limits the participation of of our full democracy and of our our full government in providing these services. And so the underfunding of education, the underfunding of our boards of elections, uh, the holding back of these resources in the midst of six billion dollars of uh, surplus in the state. You know, these are individual questions that are really being controlled by one body that is, um, you know, taking a partisan power grab in our state.
0: We have to uh, take our break uh, right now. We want to allow you to take a deep breath and uh, rejoin us uh, here in uh, a couple of minutes as we uh, conclude uh, this uh, discussion dealing with the uh, impact of uh, recent decisions by the North Carolina uh, Supreme Court that uh, interferes with uh, the uh, ability of people to register and vote and participate in the uh, political franchise uh, in this uh, in the state. So we'll be right back.
5: Hello, this is Kiana Woods, and I'm a current third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your weekly announcement. This week on Legal Eagle Review, we discussed the Harper v. Hall decision concerning the issue of redistricting and alleged gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is the practice of setting boundaries of electoral districts to favor specific political interests within legislative bodies. The case of this originates from an appeal between North Carolina residents who filed a lawsuit in 2019 against members of the North Carolina Board of Elections and various state legislators to challenge the 2016 Congressional redistricting plan as unconstitutional under the North Carolina Constitution. The North Carolina Supreme Court agreed with the residents, holding that elections are not free if voters are denied equal voting power. However, without a change of law or emergence of new facts, the Supreme Court revisited the decision and overruled their previous decision and decided gerrymandering is considered a political question and thereby cannot be decided by the North Carolina Supreme Court. Instead, matters of gerrymandering were determined to be better left to the political process. Now this new decision has the opportunity to severely change the trajectory of electoral elections for years to come in North Carolina. This is Kiana Woods with your weekly announcement. Thank you for listening.
1: And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-hosts, Irving Joyner and I, have been talking with two experts on voting rights here in North Carolina and community activists and making sure that the community stays informed uh, in terms of what is going on in our government and what we need to do to make sure we are able to exercise our right to vote. We have been talking with Jeff Loprefito, the Interim Chief Counsel of Voting Rights for the Southern Coalition, of Social Justice and Marcus Bass, Executive Director of Advanced North Carolina and Deputy Director of North Carolina Black Alliance. So Marcus, right before the break, you were providing us with some um, incredibly valuable and much needed history. And we had to take a break before you could share your thoughts on how you combat misinformation, which we know is a tool that has been used during the time of voting to try to suppress the vote?
3: Yes, were we were saying um, right at the break, I was about to get into it, the, especially for the listening audience. Uh, we identified the black community identified misinformation long before it was tagged as AI. Uh, individuals have used social media as a means to create fake accounts or black bots, black face bots. Uh, individuals that are parading as African-Americans or trusted influences in the community only to spread misinformation. Uh, We've even known before social media, individuals would tell black voters to vote on one day and then white voters had to vote on another day. Um, We've been told or challenged at the polls. And I think uh, recently we've seen the use of social media being used as a way to invoke messages to an audience that may not have the time to fact check. And so what we've been doing is making sure that uh, we've been letting folks know to check your sources. If you're seeing a a very popular TikTok video uh, that seems to be very well produced, you may want to make sure on the back end that it's a valid source and all in all intents and purposes, the best arbitrators of information are going to be your state government agencies, the state board of elections, and then beyond that, organizations like SCSJ, like the Black Alliance, and of course, trusted legal sources and representation in community, not just somebody that has a bunch of followers on the internet or some catchy social media, but um, even folks that are calling in to residents right now, uh, we uh, have seen individuals getting pieces of mail telling them that their voter registration is invalid and telling all they have to do is sign information and that gets mailed back in and they'll be corrected. So there are a lot of different ways online and offline that we have to guard ourselves and we're working to make sure that voters know all of these different attempts to try to undermine and suppress the vote.
1: And Jeff, we know that your organization does a lot to educate the public and you've talked about those efforts. Um, of course, you all are concerned about misinformation as well. Do you have any thoughts to share?
2: Yeah, it's a really important topic because, unfortunately, uh, I know this has been likely the case historically, but especially in the the last uh, decade or so, we have seen sort of the the distrust of elections being a featured uh, aspect of one of the the national political parties. You know, that the elections are rigged up until the point that the preferred candidate wins and then everything's fine. I mean, much of the restrictive litigation that we're seeing relating to voting stems from these underlying premises, all of which have been disputed dis, uh, uh, and, and um, fact-checked and found to be baseless, that somehow our, our elections are not secure. I mean, voter ID, think about what voter ID is supposed to do. Voter ID allows the election official to see that the person presenting in front of them matches the image that is before them. So it is attempted to, to thwart out in-person voter fraud, me going into the, uh, the the polling precinct where Marcus lives and saying that I'm Marcus Bass and asking him to vote as him. Um, so what does our the data actually say about that? Well, the, the North Carolina State Board of Elections, which was at the time was under Republican control, um, uh, with then Governor McCrory in, in place, did an audit of the 2016 election results and found that there were uh, two instances in the multi-million ballots cast of in-person voter fraud. And it was an individual um, who voted for her mother. It was her mother's dying wish on her deathbed to vote for Donald Trump. So she took her ID. She reasonably resembled her mother. Went in person, voted. Interestingly, she was not prosecuted because she she told the people her her sob story and and said she didn't know. So the the, the idea that you need voter ID to thwart out this type of election fraud is entirely baseless. Uh, the idea that like non citizens are swinging our elections. This was a a big topic in the news in 2018 when. Um, uh, the the immigration services partnered with the the federal attorney generals and launched an investigation in North Carolina. Um, several years later, they came back with a handful of prosecutions, and many of them were individuals who'd lived in the country for decades, who held green cards, who were who were married to citizens, who just believed they were actually eligible to vote. Were asked when they went in to vote in person, and they were told, "Yeah, you can vote," um, and and it was just misunderstanding. So. Uh, there's a lot of rhetoric that supports the the need, the purported need for these laws, and then the legislators who are behind the laws say, "Well, the people want it," and it's a it's a vicious uh, echo chamber and circle. You know, they're they're fomenting this idea of folks stealing elections. Then the people are concerned about it. Then they go past the laws that they say are needed to to thwart these these efforts, and it's not uh, none of it is based in fact. Mm-hmm.
0: Pursuant to the, uh, the former Supreme Court's decision to allow those individuals who had been recently uh, released from, uh, from prison and had not uh, paid uh, fines and fees or other uh, probationary uh, judgments uh, that allowed them to uh, vote, one of the decisions from the present Supreme Court reversed that. Uh, now. Uh, Those individuals uh, will not be able uh, to vote, but during the interim, a number of uh, formerly incarcerated individuals uh, took advantage of the law, uh, registered, and uh, did vote in the uh, last uh, election. What happens to them now? Uh, Are they still uh, legitimately registered to vote and can go to the polls and vote without violating the law? Or... Does the uh, recent decision basically invalidate uh, their uh, their registration? So I want to start with Jeff uh, on that, and then go to Marcus because Marcus is uh, will encounter uh, in his uh, organizational work individuals who will be asking just that question. So Jeff,
2: yeah, this is a really important question because this has been one can only imagine the sort of the the, the the twists and turns for these individuals who are impacted by these decisions because it has literally changed their eligibility to vote um, multiple times in the last two years they are now not eligible to vote so even if they registered um, and voted previously while the supreme court's injunction was in place they are no longer lawful voters in north carolina and they. The guidance, I believe, and, and let me give a shout out to, to our friends at Forward Justice who have a um, resources and hot, a hotline where if you're impacted by this decision, you can contact them for additional guidance at their webpage. Um, the, uh, the consequences here are, are significant because there is a statute in the election code that my, my office is actually uh, challenging uh, as, as, uh, as unconstitutional, but it remains in the books right now that says that if you are still serving your felony uh, sentence, which includes uh, parole, probation, or outstanding fines and fees, and you vote, even if you had no idea that you were not eligible, even if the poll worker says, yeah, you're eligible, you're standing in front of me, you're a registered voter in this county, of course you can vote. If if any of those things happen, you can be uh, prosecuted for a felony. It is a strict liability statute. It is one of the few strict liability statutes in the entirety of the election code. And it has extremely racist origins as as is no surprise it was passed in the 1800s for the direct purpose of disenfranchising black voters um, as a response to such to the history that marcus was telling us about um, in terms of opening democracy and access to to the full electorate and um and that is that is the law right now and the state board of, of elections will investigate you and they will refer you to local prosecutors and then it's just the luck of the draw as to whether the prosecutor in the county you happen to live in is willing to prosecute these cases or not and unfortunately that, that has been falling um as we've been talking about um, in, in over the partisan line so certain jurisdictions will probably prosecute you others won't uh so the warning here for those individuals is to contact their county board members deactivate their registration and do not vote
3: yeah i'll, I'll just i'll just add I, I had the pleasure of um uh, meeting with attorney general josh stein who informed us that they were in communication with individuals that had been registered. Those individuals also through Karen Brinson-Bell, the Executive Director of the Board of Elections for the state of North Carolina, have been uh, given letters letting them know that their status has been revoked. Uh, I think ultimately this is disenfranchisement in its truest form. Uh, there is no reason why an individual uh, who is counted as a citizen in a census block who is a person by all means, should be denied the right to vote because of uh, a carceral state, the carceral state that is put upon them. um, In some cases that could be invalidated uh, at the turn of a dime. We've seen cases that have been overturned every single day, individuals wrongfully convicted. Uh, In this case, I think, however, we think about the individuals that are impacted directly. Uh, I was just in Atlanta this week, just yesterday with Desmond Mead, uh, who told us uh, that this would happen a year ago. Uh, Florida has seen this exact same thing happen. Uh, States in uh, the Midwest are seeing a similar uh, occurrence. Uh, These, uh, this turn of events by our state uh, Supreme Court are choreographed at a national level by a racist Republican agenda. And in all of the states that we have seen the enfranchisement of individuals that were formerly incarcerated, that were off paper, uh, these individuals Uh, and the General Assembly have controlled or tried to take back the power of these individuals yet again. And so I think it's important to note that this is not an organic uh, ruling that came from individuals in North Carolina. This is a um, pre-described, pre-cooked, pre-baked cake, a poison pill, as we must. And the individuals that are supposed to be in power in North Carolina for our good, they have puppet strings behind them that are taxed a million dollar donors that are uh, funding this racist agenda to put out uh, these types of policies. In some cases, 500 different laws in states across the country have been passed to disenfranchise voters um, and most of them harm individuals uh, that by no choice of their own are being uh, pit against the system and their voting rights are being taken away.
1: So Marcus, you began your comments at the top of the show with um, coming from a position of, of hope and empowerment and what we can do to make sure that we exercise our right to vote and, we, and, and those who have um, a genuine interest in seeing all people who are eligible to vote, that the General Assembly um, reflects the electorate. And I want to make sure that we end this show on that same hopeful note, right? So whenever you're talking about voting rights and you're talking about power, um, and we know that people will not give up power willingly, you've got to really galvanize and and take it. Um, so can you you've talked a little bit about what your organization is doing to galvanize the vote? What else are you doing, and what advice would you give our listeners to help make um, to help move the needle to make sure that we are actively involved and that we do see the progress notwithstanding all of the barriers that are being placed in our way to prevent us from being able to fully exercise our rights as citizens of this country and this state.
3: The, the mere fact that we've had this conversation during this um, um, broadcast, and we've not mentioned a single political candidate, should let you know that it's not about Uh, the person. It's not about the political candidate. It's about the issues. It's about the people. I think the fact of the matter is all of this attention, all this legislative and judicial back and forth around the enfranchisement of voters that are majority Black voters are because we are in rapid numbers mobilizing our power to create change in this country. Uh, We're seeing a shift, and this is the last gasp of a radical racist history in our country. Um, I was uh, listening to someone say last night the Liberty Bell has been was broken for a reason, because our democracy, our country uh, has been fragmented since its inception. But I think the fight back in this country and what we've seen over the past 100 years is emblematical of what we need to do. We've not always had uh, free and fair elections. Uh, We've seen record numbers of blacks turn out in the 1800s right after slavery. And then We see Jim Crow uh, laws being put in place to undermine our vote. And then despite despite that, voters fought back like never before and got us some of the first Black mayors, uh, first Black president. We are of that stock. We have that muscle memory. And I think as we continue to move, we continue to understand that uh, there is going to be suppression, but that also is emblematical of how stronger we're becoming. And for those folks that are on the fence or thinking that voting is uh, not going to get it or not enough, Uh, elections are determined by five votes or less in precincts. And this year, local elections on the ballot. Your mayor, your city council, they determine the police chief, they determine the law and order in your communities. They determine how much money goes towards education in in certain cases. And you have the power to make that difference. It's not just about every four years, but it's about every single election cycle and the power is truly still in the ballot. I believe that, and I see examples of that every day with folks from the Black Lives Matter movement running for office, individuals graduating from college and working in these organizations to do this work is not because we don't have power, it's because we're powerful beyond measure. And I'm excited to work with organizations like SESJ and be on the legal eagle review to highlight the harm, but also talk about the hope too, because we do have a lot to be hopeful for. We just have to stand up and take our power, take our power back.
1: Thank you, Marcus. Jeff, hopefulness.
2: You know, one of the uh, t- to be a good litigator, you don't need to know when to speak up, and you also need to know when you keep, to keep your mouth shut. and I, I think that was the perfect answer. I have nothing to add to that. Um, I, I, I'm inspired sitting here hearing it um, and, and looking forward to doing more of the work and getting the word out.
1: Excellent. And so Jeff, can you if folks want to get involved with uh, SESJ? Where can you, where can they find you, and and what type of work do you encourage folks to do? And then Marcus will have you answer that same question before we close out.
2: Yes, we have a um, uh, a growing social media presence. We're on um, Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on um, Instagram. We're on TikTok. We have our um, webpage, uh, SouthernCoalition.org. Um, and uh, we are always looking for, especially in the lead up to election season, looking for volunteers to help with our nonpartisan election protection hotline, which helps individual voters vote uh, with with regard to whatever circumstance they're facing um, in the moment, in real time, uh, in a way that, um, you know, county boards of elections and the state boards of elections uh, actually can't handle in terms of uh, live telephone calls coming in to respond to, to issues. So we're always looking for people to help out with that. And um, we're all, always, uh, you know, best informed by communities. So if there are issues happening in your community with, with regard to uh, voting districts, uh, local government, uh, any other efforts at disenfranchisement, we'd love to hear about it and help with and, uh,
3: it. And for us, the North Carolina Black Alliance to Advance Carolina, uh, we're engaged right now in a massive voter turnout project. We know that regardless of what laws will be put in place and barriers, we have to make sure we're turning out like never before. And this year is a on year for us. Uh, on June 3rd in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, we're going to be uh, having a social action community roundtable. Uh, we'll have different voices uh, that are in this fight talking at a length about what the faith community, what the Divine Nine community can do, what our uh, HBCU campuses can do. And, and uh, Chief Justice, well, not Chief Justice, Supreme Court Justice. Anita Earls will be there along with um, some of our other partner organizations giving data and uh, other information about what's happening and then we're going to break out into sessions around how folks can really take part in being ambassadors, sharing the gospel of what needs to happen around this election cycle and how we can take our power back, like I mentioned. And so uh, at 821 Word Plaza, Rocky Mount, North Carolina, the Impact Center, Pastor James Galliard, former representative in the North Carolina House, is going to be hosting a social action community roundtable on June 3rd. And we're doing that across the state of North Carolina to make sure voters get a sense. If you're hungry, and you want an appetite uh, for how to engage and create change, not just get this, but what to do with the information, come out to these events, and you can follow us on social media, Advanced Carolina, uh, NC Black Alliance. And we currently update all of our information you know, every single day, letting folks know exactly what's happening and how they can create change.
1: Excellent. Thank you both for for being our guest and sharing your knowledge and insight and your enthusiasm. And thank you so much for all the hard work you do and the advocacy. Um, we We can't say how much we appreciate you. And our guests were Marcus Bass, Executive Director of Advance North Carolina and Deputy Director of NC Black Alliance, and Jeff Loprovito, who is the Interim Chief Counsel of Voting Rights for the Southern Coalition for Social Justice. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. And we hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll take this information and share it with your family and friends and members of your community. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever missed this show on Sunday, you can find us on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.